Chapter sixty four of No Quarter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Reese, Cordova, Illinois. No Quarter by Thomas Main Reed. Chapter sixty four A House on Fire. The moon had risen, but only to be seen at intervals. Heavy cumuli drifting sluggishly athwart the sky, now and then drew curtain-like over her disk, making the earth dark as Erebus. Between these recurrent cloud eclipses, however, her light was of the clearest, for the atmosphere otherwise was without haze or mist. She was shining in full effulgence, as a body of horsemen commenced breasting the pitch, which winds up from Mitcheldean to the wilderness. Their distinctive standard was sheathed, not needing to display in the night. But the green uniforms and the cocktail feathers pluming their hats told them to be Walwyn's horse, the foresters. They were still wet with the flood water through which they had waded after clearing the gates of Gloucester. Their horses, too, the coats of these further darkened by sweat, save where the flakes of white froth tossed back on their necks and counters gave them a piebald appearance all betokened a terrible pace and such had they kept up scarce slowing for an instant from the flood's edge till they entered the town of mitcheldean then it was but a momentary halt in the street and without leaving the saddle just long enough to inquire whether master ambrose powell had that day passed through the place he had late in the afternoon on horseback without any attendant, and apparently in great haste. "'Prisoner or not, they have him at Hollymead now,' observed Sir Richard to Eustace Trevor, as they trotted on through the town to the foot of the hill where the road runs up to the wilderness. To gallop horses already blown against that steep acclivity would have been to kill them, but the leader of the party, familiar with it, did not put them to the test. Instead, commanded a walk and while riding side by side he and his troop captain held something of a lengthened conversation, up to that time only a few hurried words having been exchanged between them. "'I wish the letter had been a little more explicit as to their numbers,' said Sir Richard. "'About two hundred may mean three, or only one. A woman's estimate is not the most reliable in such matters.' "'What did the cadgeress say of it, Colonel? "'You questioned her, I suppose?' "'Minutely, but to no purpose. "'She only came to the house after they had scattered all around it, "'and, of course, had no definite idea of their number. "'So we shan't know how many we'll have to cross swords with "'till we get upon the ground.' "'If we have the chance to cross swords with any. "'I only wish we were sure of that.' "'The deuce!' They may be gone away, you think? Rather fear it, Sir Richard. Powell must have reached Hollymead before nightfall, and if they intended making him a prisoner, t'would be done at once, with no object for their staying afterwards. Unless they have done a long day's march, and meant to quarter there for the night. If they went thither direct from Bristol, which is like enough, that's just what they'd do, stay the night, and start back for Bristol in the morning. I have fears, Colonel, 
we won't find it so. More likely the prince was at Monmouth on account of what's happened there, and will return to it, has returned already. If so, Trevor, it will be a black night for you and me, a bitter disappointment and something worse. If he's gone from Hollymead, so will they, father, daughters, all. Rupert's not the sort to leave such behind within a better like Tom Lunsford. As for your cousin, remember how you crossed him. It's but natural he should feel spiteful, and show it in that quarter. If he do, I'll cross him worse when we come to crossing swords. And I'll find the chance. We've made mutual promise to give no quarter, almost sworn it. If ill befall Vega Powell through him, I'll keep that promise faithfully as any oath. But right you should, and for settling scores you may soon have the opportunity, I trust, within the hour. Then, Colonel, you think they'll still be at Hollymead? I hope it, rather, grounding my hope on another habit of this German prince, one he has late been indulging to excess, tis said. Drink? Just so. In the which Lunsford, with a head hard as his heart, will stand by him cup for cup. But can that affect their staying at Hollymead? Certainly it can. Probably will. How, Sir Richard? By their getting inebriated there, or at all events, enough so to make them careless about moving off before the morning. The more as they can't be expecting any surprise from this side. You remember there was a fair stock of wine in the cellars when we were there. Best sorts, too. Let loose at that, they're likely to stay by it as long as the tap runs. God grant it may run till morning, then, was the prayer of the young officer, fervently spoken. In his ways of thought and speech, two years campaigning had made much change, deepening the gravity of one naturally of serious turn. No matter about morning, rejoined Sir Richard. If it but hold out for another hour, and we find them there, something else will then be running red as the wine. Ah, Master Lunsford, one more meeting with you, that's what I want now. If I'm lucky enough to have it this night, this night will be the last of your life. The apostrophe, which was but a mental reflection, had reference to something Sabrina had been telling him, vividly recalled by the words in her latest letter, that horrid man. At the same instant, and in similar strain, was Eustace Trevor reflecting about his cousin Reginald, making mental vow that, if Vega suffered shame by him, neither would his life be of long endurance. By this they had surmounted the pitch, and arrived at a spot both had good reason to remember. It was the piece of level turf where, once bearing blades, they had come so near sending one or other out of the world. Their horses remembered it too. They were still riding the same and with a recollection which had a result quaintly comical. Soon as on the ground, without check of rein or word said, they came to a sudden halt, turned head to head, snorting and angry-like, as if expecting a renewal of the combat. All the more strange this behavior on the part of the animals that, since their hostile encounter, for now over two years they had been together in amiable association. A circumstance, so odd, so ludicrous, could not fail to excite the risibility of their riders, and laugh both did, despite their serious mood at the moment. To their following it but caused surprise. Two alone comprehending, so far as to see the fun of it. These Hubert, the trumpeter, 
and the light varlet, then so near coming to blows with him, who through thick and thin had ever since stuck to the ex-gentleman usher, his master. No doubt the little interlude would have led to some speech about it, between the chief actors and the more serious encounter it recalled, but for something at that moment seen by them, turning their thoughts into a new channel. Away westward, beyond Rybrook, beyond Rarding Ridge, the sky showed a clearness that had not to do with the moon's light, instead was ruddier and shone brighter, as this became obscured by a thick cloud drifting over her disk. A glowing, gleaming light, unusual in a way, but natural enough regarded as the glare of a conflagration, which, in reality, it was. "'House on fire over yonder?' cried one of the soldiers. "'Maybe only a haystack,' suggested a second. "'More like a town, judging by the big blaze,' reasoned a third. "'There's no town in that direction, only Rardine. Where's we be going?' "'Why mont it be Rardine, then?' queried the first speaker. "'Or the church?' "'And a good thing, if it be the church,' put in one of strong Puritan proclivities. "'It want burnin' down, as every other, with their altars and images. "'They be a curse to the country, the parsons, too. "'They've taken sides with the stinkin' cavaliers against Parliament and people all along.' "'That's true,' endorsed another of like iconoclastic sentiments. "'And if it ain't the church as be given up that light, let's illuminate it when we get there. "'I go for that.' a proposal which called forth a chorus of assenting responses. While this play of words was in progress along the line of rank-and-file rearwards, the colonel and Captain Trevor, at its head, were engaged in a dialogue of conjectures about the same, a brief one. "'What do you think it is?' asked Sir Richard, as they sat halted in their saddles regarding the garish light. "'It looks to be over Rardine, or near it.' "'A fire of some kind, colonel. No common one, either.' A farmer's rick? I fear not. Would we were sure of its being only that. Ha! A house, you think? I do, Sir Richard. And? The one we're making for. By heavens, I believe it is. It bears that way to a point. Rardine's more to the right. Yes, it must be Hollymead. Both talked excitedly, but no more words passed between them there and then. The next herd was the command, March! Double quick! And down the hill to Drybrook went they at a gallop, over the tiny stream, and up the long winding slope round the shoulder of Rardine Hill, without halt or draw on bridle. There only poising for an instant, as they came within view of the village, and saw the conflagration was not in, but wide away from it, the glare and sparks ascending over the spot where Hollymead House should be, but was no more. As, continuing their gallop, they rode in through the park gates. It was to see a vast blazing pile, like a bonfire built by titans, the faggots' great beams heaped together confusedly, from which issued a hissing and crackling, with at intervals loud explosions, as from an ordnance magazine on fire. End of chapter 64 Recording by Matthew Reese, Cordova, Illinois